If you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke 7. We're going to continue working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And and as you're finding your place there, I want to make a statement. I want you to think about this statement. We're going to come back to it as we walk through this text. But here's the statement I want you to kind of wrestle with. Suffering is just part of the deal. Suffering is just part of the deal. I heard that statement made when I was a college student. I was an intern at my home church working in our student ministry. And a guy named Neil McClendon, he's a senior pastor in Texas now. Back then he was a... A uh, student pastor, he did a lot of student camps, and he was our camp preacher that particular year at student camp. And Neil McLennan was preaching from a passage of scripture all week long that dealt with suffering and how God gives the believer the ability to persevere and endure during and through difficult times, that the Lord sustains us with his power. And his point that he kept making over and over and over again was that no one likes suffering. Anybody want to sign up for suffering this morning? Like, hey, Pastor, sign me up for that. I want to go through the hardest things you can imagine. Sign me up today. No, no one likes, no one wants to suffer. And yet Neil McClendon kept reminding us that suffering is just part of the deal. In other words, suffering is what it means to live in a fallen world. It, it's part of what it means to live in a world that's cursed by God because of sin. You see, today the stark reality is that if you live long enough, you will suffer on some level. You're going to experience some sort of suffering in your life. Think about it. You or a loved one will be diagnosed with some sort of wonder, terrible, horrible disease, or you're going to be diagnosed with cancer. Someone you love is going to die at some point in your life. We could go across the room today and and we could tell stories of people that we know, people that we're close to that have passed on. Maybe even today we could tell stories of those who are battling cancer or who have major illness and sicknesses. Do you know that the American Cancer Society this year in 2022 expects 1,918,030 new cancer cases? top of that, they expect 609,360 people to die from cancer this year. And so over 1.9 million new cancer cases will be will become a reality in people's lives, and 609,000 will die from cancer. That's just this year. And that's just cancer. That's not taking into consideration all of the different diseases and things that we will deal with and other cancers that are out there. We add on to them the thousands of marriages that will end in divorce, all of the children that are affected as a result of that. We we take into consideration the effects of war and racism and unemployment, poverty, abuse, corrupt leaders around the world, persecution, disappointments, economic downturns, the effects of aging, sicknesses, and the fear of just the unknown. And we begin to catch a glimpse of why there's so many people who are ravaged by anxiety and overwhelmed with stress. Kind of get a picture of that? That's what it means to live in a fallen world. You see, we live today in a world that is filled with pain and suffering. 
sharing the gospel with one of our young girls this past Friday, and I used the three circles. It's a wonderful, easy way to share the gospel, and I moved from the circle of God's design, how he's made us, and made us for himself, made us to be in relationship with himself, but I talked about how sin has broken that design, and it's led into this place of brokenness. I talked with this little girl who She's not experienced most of the brokenness that those of us who are adults have experienced. But I tried to convey to her that all of us, because of sin, are broken. And in our brokenness, we recognize that and we're trying to fix it. And so in that second circle, I drew some squiggly lines and an arrow. And I said, every one of us are trying to get out of our brokenness and we're running to something to fix that brokenness. I wanted that to be conveyed to a girl that's in third or fourth grade, I want it today to be conveyed to all of us adults and everyone down from that because we're all broken and we live in a broken world that's full of pain and suffering. I think on many levels we recognize this. We recognize the presence of suffering and yet we wrestle with the why of its presence. We recognize it's there but we don't really understand or, and have a hard time realizing and, and knowing why it's present in our lives. You see, the Christian life is caught up in this tension between our experience and its apparent conflict with the God that we see in Scripture, the, the character of God that the Bible claims and, and portrays of Him. Philosophers call this the problem of evil. Uh, the term is theodicy. You see, living in this tension is a great challenge because we're trying to understand the God who is good and the God who is gracious and the God who is benevolent with the bad and the evil that we experience on a daily basis. The Bible talks of God being in control of everything in the universe. The Bible portrays this image of God knowing and, and, and overseeing every aspect of the cosmos. Nothing happens without his knowledge. Nothing happens without his will. The Bible also portrays his goodness and his benevolence toward humanity. And, and these two aspects of God's character seem, however, to be at odds with our experience. And, and yet the Bible will tell us that they're not at odds at all. The Bible makes it clear that sin is the origin of all suffering, not God. We just started a class on Wednesday night this past week. One of our life development classes, really it's the life development class this semester, and we're just dealing with the subject of suffering. It's, it's an amazing. I didn't plan it out that I was going to deal with suffering in this passage of Scripture, but we are. We're going to look at it this morning, and for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be talking about suffering and trying to understand it biblically. That's a little uh, infomercial, a little commercial for this class, and I would love for you to join us. I don't know where you're going to sit, but come join us. It was a packed house last Wednesday. The Bible also shows us that God in his sovereignty uses suffering for his own purposes to shape history and to shape the character of his people. And so while believers often have questions about why God is allowing and even causing suffering in the lives of people, the Bible's message to us is pretty clear. The Bible's message to us is that learning to trust the Lord is way more important than knowing the why. So we got to lean in and believe what the Bible says about him, even when we don't understand why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. And yet in that, we must not misunderstand the message of the Bible as something that's saying this. Shut up and sit down. 
Don't worry about it. Just lean in and endure. Just get through it. The Bible is not saying that. The Bible just doesn't say, don't worry about the why. It gives us some aspects of that. It's not telling us to be quiet and endure. Nowhere in Scripture do we find God being indifferent or being cold toward the pain and the suffering of the people that experience suffering. Here's an example of that. If you remember in Genesis 21, a woman by the name of Hagar and her son Ishmael. Ishmael is Abram's, Abraham's first son, but he's not the son of promise. And so he sends Hagar out with his son because the son of promise was the son of promise. And so Hagar takes her son and she leaves and she's wondering and they get to a place where there's no food, there's no water. They're basically just going to sit there and die. And God comes to her and comes to her, him in the midst of their suffering and provides. We see it all throughout Scripture how God is not blind to our suffering. It's true of Israel in, the, in Egypt as he brings them out of their pain, brings them out of their suffering. It's true of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. Here's a woman who is barren and she desires to have a son. And God visits her and gives her a son. We see it in the lives of Joseph and David and Elijah and Jeremiah and so many others in Scripture. What we see is that it is also true of the widow here in Luke chapter 7, where we're going to be this morning. And so take your copy of God's Word and let's read verses 11 through 17. Luke tells us this. Soon afterward, he, remember that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet is risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Last week as we began this seventh chapter in the Gospel of Luke, I told you that what we see in this chapter are five scenes that provide really five different windows into who Jesus is. And we also see in these five scenes how the people that were involved in each scene responded to Jesus. Last week as we looked at the first scene, we saw that Jesus reacts to faith as the centurion believes on the Lord for the healing of his servant. And what we learn there is that faith is an exercise in reality, that we see ourselves for who we are and we see Jesus for who he is. That we rightly see both of those aspects. The second scene that we see this morning, Jesus is moved with compassion towards a widow who is burying her son. And in response, the people stand in awe of his marvelous grace. And those last two verses in this passage, they see all this taking place and they stand in all of that and are drawn to the Lord Jesus. Here's a statement I've heard and you've probably heard something similar. It's been said that the will of God will not take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Have you ever heard a statement like that? That the will of God, God's purpose for your life, will not take you any further than the grace of God can keep you. Keep you firm and grounded. 
Certainly the death of a child is one of the greatest agonies possible in our lives. The burying of a child is literally a burying of part of oneself. It's part of mom. It's part of dad. The burying of a child is a period before the end of a sentence. It's the death of a future. From human perspective, it's always premature. We always look at the death of a child. It doesn't matter if that child is 65 years old and mom and dad are 85 years old. It doesn't matter what the age is. If the child is dying before the parents, the parents from earth's perspective look at it and say, this is premature. It shouldn't happen this way. I'm to go first. They got more life to live. And so that's the situation that this woman finds herself in as Jesus approaches this town called Nain. So because it's always premature and because it's always this idea and concept of a part of us dying, parents fear the death of their children perhaps more than anything else. And unfortunately for this widow in this town, the worst nightmare had come to her and it had become a reality. What is this town named Name? We don't see it often in Scripture. It's a small town. It's about 25 miles away from the city of Capernaum. It's a full day's walk from that area of the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus and his entourage uh, arrive there in Nain, Luke tells us that this funeral procession is leaving the town of Nain. They're coming out through the town gate. The man in the coffin had died earlier that morning. Luke tells us that he's the only son. He's the, probably the only child of this widow. So now this suffering woman had already buried her husband. Now she's laying her only child to rest, not to mention a son. The large crowd of mourners in the funeral procession are are there to symbolize and to show the, the agony of the moment that not only had she lost a son, but now she's alone. So it's really ironic that this large crowd would follow her and, and mourn with her because the next morning everything would be totally different. This is a widow that is no longer going to have a son, which means she no longer has a provider. She no longer has a protector. She's alone in this world. And yet Jesus meets her at the outskirts of the town. This tragic scene is awful until Jesus steps into her pain. This passage, this story is in juxtaposition to the centurion situation that we looked at last week. This grieving widow never requests the help of Jesus. The centurion sent servants to Jesus and says, Jesus, come, my servant's on the brink of death. But if you'll come, he can be healed. Here's a woman who doesn't even recognize Jesus, it seems, until Jesus comes to the edge of the funeral procession, touches the casket, and says to the woman, do not weep. But until this moment, she's so overwhelmed in grief that she doesn't recognize the presence of Jesus. Jesus makes a very strange statement when he says, do not weep. Can you imagine going to a funeral this week and, 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 the, and the family's there and they're weeping because they've lost a loved one. And you walk up to them and say, don't weep. Just don't weep. Can you imagine saying that to a mama who's burying her son? I, I, I picture it this way. If you had the audacity to actually come up to a mom who's burying her son and you said, don't weep. I would think that as you say that, you probably should duck because the right hook's coming in. I figured I'd get a little bit more laugh than that. Y'all like? No one would ever tell a grieving mom not to weep. And yet that's what Jesus does. 
He says something that we would think would be offensive. And yet Jesus makes the statement because he's giving a hint to what he's about to do. He's giving a, 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 a window into how he's going to heal the situation and bring healing to her brokenness. The first story, this first scene that we looked at last week, the centurion's pain. What we see there is we need to believe in and on Jesus Christ. In this second scene, in the widow's grief, we see that the pains and failures of this world are burdens that are too heavy to be carried alone. And yet, thankfully, the Lord Jesus steps into our hurt and he is our help. Reminds me of that beautiful verse in Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. Listen to what it says. A very present help in trouble. That's who Jesus is. He is and he offers help in your hurt. And so I want to share with you four helping actions that we see here in this text this morning. First of all, we see this. The Lord sees your suffering. The Lord sees your suffering. As I read through the text this week and I was trying to understand what's going on here, I just had a question that came to my mind. Why did Jesus leave Capernaum to go to Nain? 25-mile walk. It's not on a flat plain. It's hills. It's up and down. It's a lot of goat trails probably. Why would Jesus leave the town of Capernaum when there's a lot of ministry happening there? Remember, in Luke 4, he has healed all kinds of people who were sick. He's cast out demons for those who are possessed. He, he, he's, he has um, healed this servant from the centurion in the passage that we just read. There's a lot of things happening in Capernaum, and he's doing a lot of ministry. Why get up that morning, have bacon and eggs? Well, I guess he wouldn't have had bacon. Have some fried eggs and head over to the town of Nain. I believe it's because he saw a suffering woman. I believe it's because he knew that there was a widow there whose son had just died and she's going to bury him that afternoon. And so he sees her in her suffering and he moves with compassion toward her. That's what we see in verse 13. And so we see not only this beautiful picture of the Lord seeing this woman in suffering, we also see a beautiful picture of the same thing in Genesis chapter 16. I mentioned Hagar earlier. Let's back up in time just a little bit. But in Genesis 16, we see God seeing another woman in her time of suffering. Genesis 15, God makes a promise to a man named Abram and his wife, Sarai. Sarai is barren. She cannot have a son. But God comes to Abram and says, you will have a son. You're going to have an heir. I'm going to make you a great a nation or nations are going to come from you. And Abram's wrestling with this. He's like, how can that be? I don't even have my own heir. And God says, you will have a son. And so Abram believes this promise and years begin to pass and it's not coming to fruition. And so Abram and Sarai, like you and I have a tendency to do, begin to think, well, God really didn't mean it this way. And so we're going to help God out. Sarah decided, hey, I'm barren, I can't get pregnant, and, and which means you're not going to have a son, which means you're not going to have an heir, which means God's promise can't come to fruition, and so we've got to help the Lord out, so here's what we're going to do. Abram, I want you to take my handmaid, I want you to take my servant, Hagar, and, and through her, let's make a, a, an heir for God's plan. So Abram says, well, I don't know about that, That's, I guess we'll do it, and 
Or maybe he said, well, that sounds like a great idea. I don't know what his, his mindset there was, but we do know he said, okay. And he took Hagar, she conceived, got pregnant. And the Bible tells us that when all of that happened, Sarai began to think, well, I don't know if I like this situation. And she began to look on Hagar with contempt. She began to treat her harshly. And so it was so bad that Hagar, pregnant, decides, I've got to get out of here. And she leaves, flees from the camp, and God sees her in her suffering and comes to her. At this point, she's out of water. God comes and visits her, asks her where she's from, where she's going, asks her all these questions, kind of get in her spiritually. And in all of this, his grace uh, just overshadows and overwhelms her. And this is her response back to the Lord. She calls the name of the Lord. You are a God of seeing. You see, God sees you in your hurt. Just as he saw Hagar, just as he sees this widow, he sees you in your suffering. No matter what your hurt may be, he sees it, he's aware of it, and he knows. That's the first action that we see from the Lord. Secondly, the Lord not only sees, but he feels your suffering. Again, in verse 13, the Lord saw the widow and he had compassion on her. He felt compassion for her. In other words, his heart went out to this, this widow in unmitigated compassion. Luke uses the strongest word possible to describe the pity of the Lord Jesus. The root word that we translate uh, compassion here comes from uh, the idea of what's on the inside, the lungs, the heart, the liver. Really, it's the idea of the guts. It's the idea that Jesus felt in his guts agony for this woman because she is in such deep grief. Is there any other place in scripture that we would see Jesus feeling compassion for another? Absolutely. In John chapter 11, these verses will be on the screen, but you surely remember the story of Lazarus. You remember the story of Lazarus who's dying or now he's dead as Jesus returns to Bethany and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus loved all three of them, had Deep, deep relationships with all three of them. But Lazarus has died, and Jesus steps into the hurting and the suffering of these two women. Listen to what John 11 says. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And so Jesus knows that he's sick. Jesus knows now that he's dead. He's returned to Bethany. Look now at verse 21. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 32 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then the verse that all of you can memorize, Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply Move, John says. John uses a different term than, than Luke does, but it conveys the same idea. It's this idea of convulsing. It's this idea of physically feeling the pain and the agony that these sisters are experiencing. And, and the same agony that the widow is experiencing. And in all of that convulsing, all of that compassion, it leads to Jesus weeping with those who are weeping. Jesus feels your suffering. These two stories inform us that Jesus is not indifferent. Jesus is not cold to our suffering. He sees you and I in our hurt, and he understands our pain. And thankfully, he doesn't just see, and thankfully, he doesn't just feel, but there's a third and a fourth action that give us great comfort. Here's the third action. The Lord offers hope in your suffering. You see, when Jesus came to this woman, and he came to this funeral procession, he came to the woman and he says, do not weep. Jesus, why would you make the statement like that? Why would you tell a woman not to weep? See, this was not an instruction telling her to suppress her emotions. Just get on with it. Just suck it up. It's part of what it means to live in this world. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's given a hint to what he's about to do. Jesus was expressing genuine care and genuine concern while hinting of a miracle that he was going to do in her life. The same is true for Mary and Martha. There in John 11, verse 21 through 27, I read some of these verses just a moment ago, but it says this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. It sounds very similar. Do not weep. Martha says, I, I know you're gonna, he'll rise again. It's in the resurrection on the last day. She has an eschatological and end times perspective. She believes in Jesus that he can do something then, but she doesn't really expect it today. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus here offers words of hope to these sisters who've buried their brother. He's been in the grave four days. And so what Jesus is saying is this. I see your suffering. I feel your suffering. Now here's words of hope in your suffering. What's the words of hope? He's the word of hope. I've arrived on the scene is what Jesus is saying. Woman, don't weep any longer. Why? Because I'm here. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the one who brings hope and, and, and help in your pain and suffering. Today, you may not be facing death in your pain and suffering. Your situation may be something very different than what we're reading here in the text. But that doesn't negate its hurt in your life. Whatever it may be, Jesus sees it, feels it, and is offering hope in the midst of it this morning. There's a final action. The Lord moves in your suffering. He moves in your suffering. 
And so in compassion, Jesus was moved to give a crying mother the only thing that could fix her grief. Her son back. Woman, don't weep. Son, rise and walk. He gave the son back to the mom. The Lord sees her pain. The Lord feels her pain. The Lord offers hope in her pain. And then he moved to remove that pain by resurrecting her dead son. And he did this by walking up and touching that casket. Here's what we see in all that. Because it would have been ceremonially unclean to touch that casket. And Jesus, as what he was known by as being a rabbi, being a great prophet, that's what they're saying about him. God has visited his people. And for him to come up and lay his hand on that casket and to literally touch a dead man or what was touching a dead man would have made him ceremonially unclean. But this is what he cares more about. I care more about the woman who's in pain and suffering than I do about what others think about me. He's willing to get down in the dirt with the people who are suffering because he's going to move in the midst of our pain. That's who Jesus is. Back to John 11. These two stories are so similar. Mary and Martha also see Jesus move in their hurt. Listen to what, happened, what John says in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the, 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 the casket Jesus reaching out his hand? Martha's saying, Jesus, don't roll the stone away. It's going to smell horrible. It's going to make us unclean. We're going we're to be unclean because of all of this. Jesus, I'm concerned for you. And Jesus says to her in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and, knew that, and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus moved in the suffering of these two sisters. And today Jesus is moving in our suffering. Well, how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that he's good. The Bible tells us that he's gracious. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign. There's nothing that happens in our life, how bad or how good it may be, that he's not sovereignly aware of, that he's not sovereignly signed off on. So there are times when he will resurrect what you've lost. There's other times he may choose not to do so, but in all things we know he is good and working on our behalf. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I had a couple conversations with some of our members yesterday who have just health issues going on in their family. It just broke my heart to hear some of the things that they've been going through over several weeks, if not months. And, and yet in that, I hear hope coming from them. I, I hear their faith in the Lord Jesus. And, and I read scripture and I know that no matter how hard and difficult it may be in that moment, in that season, in that situation in their lives, we know that God is good. And somehow, some way, he's working good in that for his glory and for their good. That is the God 
who moves in our suffering. Because suffering is just part of the deal. Suffering is just part of the deal as we live in this world. A world that is cursed by God because of sin. A world that is filled with pain. It's filled with suffering. You turn the television on and that's all that you see. I joked last week that I think the, the meteorologists these days are kind of wanting a, a, a hurricane to come along because they have something to report on. Because that's what their business is in. What meteorologist wants to stand up there and say, today it's going to be 85 degrees, no humidity, it's going to be sunny, and, and, and you're going to have the one, most wonderful weather ever. No, they want to be standing out there where they're literally kind of bracing themselves from a 100-mile-an-hour wind, and the wind and the rain is hitting them. That's what they want. That gets clicks on the television. No one wants good stories. The people on the news don't tell us the good stuff. They tell us the bad stuff, and so it can be depressing. We know that our world is full of pain and suffering. And it can be demoralizing. It can cause us to be disillusioned. It can cause us to, to, to be depressed when we get our eyes off Jesus and we forget that he sees, he feels, he offers hope, and he moves in our pain. God is good. And so today we want to look up to him. We want to receive help from him in our hurt we want to allow God to move in that hurt. We want him to use that situation to draw others to his beauty and grace. And that's what I love about how this text ends. Look there at verse 16. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What's Luke telling us about here? He's saying that when Jesus stepped into the pain of this woman's life, everyone else marveled. Jesus may not be resurrecting your loved one, but Jesus is there walking with you in the midst of that pain, helping you to respond in a way that, that shows that God is truly the Lord of your life. And that you are walking in faith and you are experiencing his goodness and his grace. And people see that and they marvel over it and say, how in the world can you be so joyful when it seems like your life has fallen apart? And you can testify and say, the only way I can be joyful in this is because of Jesus has given me something to be joyful about. Because if I'm always looking at my circumstances, I don't know about you, but I would be a depressed person walking around all the time. But when Jesus is in my life. I know that as difficult as this life may be, there's something better awaiting me, right? There's something better awaiting me. I've got this one small window of life to live. And it's going to be up and down. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be easy. It's going to be all of these things mixed into one. But I've got one life to live. And then as I faith into Jesus, I've got all of eternity to walk in his goodness and his grace, free from all that suffering. But today, I can live in faith. And allow Jesus to put all the brokenness back together. Which draws people to the goodness of God. You see that? People are drawn to Jesus by what they see in you. How you respond to the brokenness and the hurt and the pain. They see when you allow Jesus to step in. There's another aspect to this beautiful scene that we see here. There's another beautiful picture going on here. You see, when Jesus called to the dead man in the casket, uh, the widow's son heard his voice. Did you catch that as we read that? Anybody ever been to a funeral? Raise your hand. I just want to make sure you're awake. 
Okay, that's half-hearted hands. Thank you, Steve, for raising your hand all the way up. I got a lot of this, and I got a lot of nothing. But I'm glad some of you are awake. If you've been to a funeral, what do you do at a, at a viewing? Whether it's here or at some other funeral home or a funeral home, what do you do at a viewing? You, you walk up there, you, you shake the hands, you speak to the family. And, and a lot of times, especially the spouse or a mom or someone that's closest to the person who's in the casket, the, the deceased, you stand there and a lot of times you'll say, or, or someone will say something like, oh, he looks so good. Man, he looks like he's alive. I just want to stop you there. He doesn't or she doesn't look like they're alive. Maybe close, but no. How do we know that? They're not talking. They're not listening. They're not en engaging in this conversation we're having about the deceased, right? In all of those experiences, and I've been to a lot of funerals, I've preached a lot of funerals, in all of those experiences, I stand there with the family in front of that casket, and we have a conversation about the deceased's life and, and all of the stories that we're telling. I've never had the person in the casket set up and say, hey, you got the story wrong. This is how it actually happened. I've never had them set up and say, all right, yeah, I heard what you're saying. Can I join in here? No, that never happens. Why? Because dead men don't hear and dead men don't speak. But Jesus comes to the casket and he says, son, stand up. What does that clue us into? It tells us that though the man was dead and in a casket and on his way to the, to the cemetery, he was existing somewhere, right? He is existing somewhere. It includes us into what we see in Genesis, that we've been made in the image of God, that there's something of the divine in the humanity that we experience, that there's something eternal in us. And so the Bible tells us that human beings will eternally exist in one of two places. We will eternally exist in heaven, in the presence of God for all of eternity, experiencing eternal life in him and all the goodness that comes with that. Or we will experience eternal death in a place of eternal judgment called hell with Satan and all of the demons and everyone else who's rejected Jesus' lordship. All of us will experience existence in one of those two places. I don't know where this man was. I assume that he was in heaven or somewhere, but he heard the voice of Jesus when he says, rise and walk, and he got up and lived the rest of his life. This morning, that ought to clue us into something. It ought to clue us in to what Jesus is doing in this man's life, giving him new life. When I was an 18-year-old college kid, religious kid, I heard the call of God drawing me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I answered that call. April 24th, 1997, somewhere around that, 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 that week, give or take a day, 1 John 5, 12 was the passage God used to draw me to faith in Jesus. But in those moments, I was lost in sins and trespasses, dead and on my way to hell, spiritually dead. And Jesus spoke, and I responded to that. And this morning, some of you, many of you, have responded in faith just like that in your own lives. You were in that spiritual casket, and Jesus spoke to you, and you came to new life. Some of you this morning are spiritually still in that, that casket, being a dead person in sins and trespasses. And this morning, Jesus Jesus is speaking to you and saying, come alive. And you need to come alive this morning. I don't know what situation you're in. This morning you may be a believer. Many of you are. 
Perhaps you are experiencing great suffering in your life, and it can be discouraging. This is what the Lord would want you to understand. Jesus sees your suffering. Jesus feels your suffering. You're not alone in that. Jesus offers hope in your suffering, and he's moving to help you in that suffering. Be encouraged today. Lean into what Jesus wants to help you with this morning. Some of you, you're the dead person in the casket, and you need to wake up to eternal life in Jesus Christ. We're going to have a moment to respond in just a moment. Here's what I would ask that you to do, ask of you to do. This morning, if you are struggling because of some difficult situation in your life, the response you need to make is, Lord, I don't understand. In fact, sometimes I may be angry at what I'm experiencing, but I believe that you're good. I believe that you're sovereign, and I believe that you're working on my behalf. And so then I can't see it, though I don't know what's happening, though I don't understand it. It's not about me knowing the why, but Lord, it's about me knowing the who. And I know you to be good and working for my good. And so I'm faithing into you, Lord. Maybe that's your prayer that you need to pray this morning as you struggle with suffering. Make that your prayer. Maybe you need to come to the front and just kneel down. Maybe you need to wheel around in your seat and, and, and just get on a knee. Maybe you need to ask someone else to come and pray with you. Whatever that is, if you're struggling this morning, understand that Jesus is there beside you. This morning, if you need to know him as Lord and Savior, you come. Turn your life over to him. Allow him to speak words of life into you, just as he did this man in the casket. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our God who sees us where we are. I love how Jesus was willing to leave a wonderful, active place of ministry to move to a town because he knew there was a woman who was steeped in grief. Her world had come to an end. And in compassion, he moved to her. This morning, me in this room, need to feel that, need to experience that. Lord, they may be struggling with that this morning. Open your eyes. Open their eyes, Lord, to your goodness and to your activity. Lord, I pray for those who need to come to saving faith in you. Perhaps it's a religious person. All throughout Scripture, we see religious people. But being religiously active does not equate spiritual life. And so, Lord, help us to respond to the gospel. Help us to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. Father, I pray for this time of response that we would follow the Spirit's leading. As we prayed earlier, our ears would hear, our eyes would see, our heart would receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.